Kunz. This show is all about the people behind the science of so. biotechnology and medical devices. Through the stories of the people, I hope that Lab Rats to Unicorns is able to describe the transformative process of you know, how an idea starts in the lab and eventually becomes a life-saving treatment or a product that, that helps patients with diseases. Life-saving. Well, I'm very excited about today's session of Lab Rats to Unicorns. I'm going to introduce Dr. Jim Sullivan. He's the co-founder and CEO of VanquaBio. In addition, he's been a venture partner with Orbimed since January of 2019. And previously, he was the vice president of research at AbbVie, where he was responsible for the company's research efforts in a variety of therapeutic and disease areas, including oncology, immunology, neurology, hepatitis C, and cystic fibrosis. That's quite a mouthful. And you can see early on Jim's impact far and wide in the th these therapeutic areas and, and well beyond. Um, products that came out of you know his... His work uh, that are on the market today, you know, are uh, products like Maverat, uh, Vicura in HCV, the first in class BCL2 selective inhibitor, Venclexta, and a range of other compounds that he's been instrumental in taking forward into the market and helping, helping thousands of patients around the world. Um, he's also an adjunct faculty member uh, at Northwestern University and serves on the board of several companies and foundations, including Regis Technologies, Genomics Medicine Ireland, Genuity Science Matter, Chicago Biotechnology Accelerator, uh, as, as well as many other uh, endeavors that he's engaged in. He started his early career from an educational background, getting his PhD in biochemistry from Trinity College in Dublin, and conducted his postdoctoral research in neurobiology here in Chicago at Northwestern University. So delighted to have you on the Lab Rats show, Jim. Thanks for your time today. I'm equally excited uh, with our format today. We have an opportunity to not only uh, talk a little about, about Jim's journey and background um, in, in getting to today, if you will, at VanquaBio, but also we have uh, members of our fellows program at the Chicago Biomedical Consortium. And so I'm delighted to have each of them provide a brief introduction. And the, the goal of today's discussion will be to really light up a conversation around um, you know, really all things best practices in building biotechnology companies and the ingredients to evaluate those companies and how those companies can populate and really make sustainable a long-term ecosystem and economy like the ones that we're seeing here in Chicago. Um, so why don't we start and we can get underway with uh, introductions. Hi, it's so great to be here. My name is Shana Dorazan. I am an entrepreneurial fellow with the Chicago Biomedical Consortium. I got my PhD in the Interdepartmental Neuroscience Program at Northwestern University, where I studied rat whiskers and how they help inform how our sense of touch works. Hi, my name is Amanda Maldonado, and I'm also another uh, entrepreneurial fellow, and I obtained my PhD at University of Illinois at Chicago in the medicinal chemistry program, where I evaluated small molecule natural products in high-grade serous ovarian cancer. Great, welcome. Um, hi, my name is Elon Nescone. Uh, I am another one of the entrepreneurial fellows. I got my PhD at Northwestern University in the biomedical research program there. Um, my work is focused on computational biology, where um, I really bridge the gap between biology and applied math, um, and essentially was working on circadian rhythms and developing methods for analyzing um, big data. 
Hello. Uh, and by no surprise, I too am an entrepreneur fellow. Um, my name is Carl Sokolowski. I recently completed my PharmD PhD at UIC um, in the Department of Pharmaceutical Sciences. I focused on drug delivery, specifically looking at uh, local or topical flexible delivery of antibiotics for skin and soft tissue infections. Thanks again, and welcome to our entrepreneurial fellows from CBC. It's a pleasure to have you here in the room. So, Jim, let's let's jump in and you know maybe just get started with uh, a little bit you know of uh, you know the the early influencers in your journey that maybe you looked up to that um, got you on the path to being engaged in uh, your life's work in in sciences and uh, you know just a little bit about you know were, were there any people or programs or uh, you know TV shows movies that kind of got you engaged? What were the things that got you on the path? Well, first off, John, thanks very much for the invite. Delighted to be here and particularly glad to see four entrepreneurial fellows here uh, to join in the conversation. So good question in terms of influencers uh, in my career journey. And I'd say it starts, it actually starts with my dad. Uh, He was a physician. Uh, I grew up in Ireland and he was a physician and got me very interested in thinking about you know, the, that blend of science and medicine. And so after I did my PhD in biochemistry, or I was doing my PhD in biochemistry, I happened to have a supervisor, Keith Tipton, who was very influential in my career from the perspective of um, being really passionate about figuring out how drugs work. And that, you know, I happened to work on a project many, many years ago. There's a toxin that's now used as a tool, a poor tool in Parkinson's disease research called MPTP. Well, it turns out that was a contaminant of heroin that caused a number of people to die in the late 70s and early 80s in California. And figuring out the mechanism by which these people were dying and parts of their brain were being destroyed very quickly uh, you know, it was, it, was a, it was an endeavor across neuroscience, but our lab was doing some of the research on that in terms of the role of monoamine oxidase, an enzyme in every cell. So Keith got me very interested, got for, heightened my interest. And then at Northwestern, Bill Klein, uh, neurobiologist, uh, you know, was a big, big influence. After three years at Northwestern, I realized academic life was not for me. Uh, that I had this yearning to get involved in, in you know, research that would lead to therapeutics. Uh, academic research is incredibly important, but my yearning, my passion was around uh, going after, you know, finding a therapy for patients. And at that point, I made the most consequential decision in my career because uh, people have asked me this question in the past. Okay, mm-hmm. what were the big driving forces? I went and joined a small company in Baltimore uh, called Nova Pharmaceuticals and spent three years there. And why was that the most consequential decision? Because I went in there as a biochemist, having studied neuroscience, neurobiology, but I had no clue how drugs were discovered, how they were developed, uh, how, how they were made. No clue about medicinal chemistry. And in that small company, a relatively small company, I got exposed to you know, all the other disciplines that are critical to discovering a drug that is going, hopefully going to be safe enough to go into humans and work in humans. 
And so I got exposed to medicinal chemistry. I got exposed to some of the business aspects of our industry, uh, such that when I got a call from Abbott to come back to Chicago uh, and work in, in their neuroscience group, uh, one, I was excited to make that tr transition, but I also was in probably much better equipped than if I had just jumped into big pharma as a biochemist in a big department. Were there any uh, gravitational pulls just stepping back to that you know, transformational decision that you made to kind of leave academia and get on that commercialization pathway uh, by taking on the role at Nova? What were the things that uh, maybe were uh, confusing factors in making that decision? Was it very clear cut for you or were there uh, professors, you know, advisors that were saying, you know, Jim, academic life is for you. You should stay here. Well, there was definitely, when I talked to, you know, Bill, Bill Klein, my, my, my supervisor at Northwestern, he was very supportive. Uh, you know, he had worked with a number of companies and had friends who'd gone into the industry and were very positive about the experience of working in biotech or larger companies. There were other people who were like, why would you doing that? Why would you do that? You're going to the dark side. Uh, I hate that expression, uh, to be honest, which I really intensely dislike that. Uh, so they were, you know, for me, though, it was always, I want to do, I want to be on that journey where you see something turn into what you hope will be a therapeutic that benefits patients. And the the only place I could do that back way back then, and I still think this is the truth today, you, to do it best, you need to be in a company environment. Was it difficult coming from Ireland to Chicago? And what maybe got you to come? Well, I probably Northwestern, right? Maybe there was a, well, a draw. Well, it's actually, that, there's, uh, it's a little more complicated. All right, let's hear it. Uh, let's hear it. <laughs> so I was finishing my PhD, starting to write it up, and uh, was originally going to go to the National Institutes of Health. And the summer before I was going to come to the States, say the following May, I met uh, a lady from Chicago, who is now my wife for over 30 years. Mm. And, uh, and John knows the family. That's yeah, the scary right. part of this. <laughs> you weren't able to get there. But yeah, I approved. Yeah, he approved, yeah. he approved. But <laughs> any, anyway, so uh, I came over here to visit uh, at Christmas time. I had written some letters to professors at Northwestern. And uh, I remember going for an interview at Northwestern, and after the, I thought the interview went well, but after the interview, I was walking in the hallway and met Bill Klein, and we started chatting, and we started chatting, and a couple of hours later, I went back down into my then girlfriend's car, and I said, I really think I've got a job, and I'll always remember saying, no, Jim, that's not the way it works in the States. <laughs> uh, so, so the attraction to Chicago was, well, one, I was really interested in the science Dan Bill was doing, and two, there was a another part of my life you know, that was getting cool, satisfied. It, 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 but it's, it's, it's a very interesting, uh, you know, uh, tangent, though, that I think is worth spending, you know, a couple of minutes on. And that is, um, it's a very entrepreneurial family that you, yeah. that you married into. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it's uh, the Gluns family right. who have, a, you know, a generations of entrepreneurs to this right. present day, you right. know, that are running, uh, coincidentally, businesses. you know, businesses in the related, you know, right. pharmaceutical mm -hmm. chemistry arena here with uh, Regis Technologies. Yeah. And, but before that, 
you know, the uh, beer and wine. The that was the, wine. the beer exactly. and wine business. Well, uh, and and, and the, old, the oldest wine store in Chicago and my point is on Wells and Division. That's the, to what degree, I'm jumping around yeah. a little bit here, but to what degree is, is your belief, you know, there's always this debate around are entrepreneurs made or is it part of their DNA? Is it a blend of each? You know, your observations of that family. And then it's even its own influence on maybe some of the risks that you've taken yeah. in your career. Is there any relationship? I think there's, you're born with a, a, a gene that says, you know, I'm interested in being an entrepreneur or taking risk. You know, and, and as I have had the good fortune of interviewing many, many people from many different roles over the last number of, over the last decades, if someone walks in and tells me that in five years' time they want to be a director, and that this is and there are three steps to become a director, that's a big no-no to me. Uh, I think you my my career path, and I've been very, very fortunate. Uh, but my career path is one where I had a dream about coming to the U.S. Not a dream. I wanted to come to the U.S. from early on in my life. I was the only person going to be – I left my family to come here. And uh, I was willing to take some risks and also follow – you know, if there's breadcrumbs put down in front of you, don't be afraid to reach down and pick them up and, and go after it. And then I was fortunate, obviously, to you know, in the family I've been fortunate enough to be a part of. So do you mind talking a little, a little bit more about those risks as you were move, moving from academia into Abbott into mm -hmm. now your own company? Uh, well, the risk when... The risk when you're moving from academia to a biotech company... And it's a risk, but I, uh, you know, I see it as a tremendous learning opportunity. Is that in academia you can follow your own line of inquiry and go very deep in that research, okay? And as long as you're getting grants and support, you can you can do that very successfully for many years. The risk in joining a biotech or a large company is that you're being hired to do a specific job on a specific project. But you're, you have to immediately be willing to be part of a team. And that's something I would like to come back to at some point in this conversation. The process of discovering and developing a drug is the ultimate team sport. And so the risk is, are you willing to let go of your ego uh, from the perspective of being I am all knowing about X to being part of a team where you know a lot about a little and there's a huge amount you have to, you have to collaborate with, if you're a biologist, with chemists or cell biologists or molecular biologists. And to me, that's, that's, a, that's a bit of a risk, but it's also a, uh, a tremendous opportunity to learn. Every day is the opportunity to learn because there's new science, new technology that you have to be willing to embrace. The other risk, although I think it's it depends on your your uh, attitude, attitude, I guess, in some ways, is that when you join a biotech or a larger company as a scientist, you're under your your drive has to be that you want to do something to help find a therapy for patients. 
And if that's your motivation, it's not a risk. It's a tremendous opportunity. But, you know, the quote unquote risk will be, and this happened to me, uh, you know, in my, when I moved from Baltimore back to Abbott, I was hired to work on a, a program targeting dopamine receptors for Parkinson's disease. That's what, you know, I was recruited for. Everything was great. Two weeks before I moved from Baltimore back to Chicago, uh, the VP of neuroscience at that time uh, comes out to Baltimore and says, hey, Jim, I'd love to go to dinner with you. Okay, sure, Mike. Uh, so we went out to dinner, nice restaurant. And about 20 minutes into dinner, uh, Mike goes, well, I got to share something with you. And I go, what? Well, uh, there's going to be some changes <laughs> uh, within the neuroscience group. And so we'd like, we obviously still really want you to come to Abbott, but you're no longer going to be working on a project targeting dopamine receptors. You're going to be actually working on a project. We'd like you to work on a project targeting neuronal nicotinic receptors. How do you feel about that? And I was like, well, I know nothing about neuronal nicotinic receptors, uh, but, you know, fine. I went home, talked to my wife. It was like, I'm not going to change my decision to come to, to Abbott. And I, only, I share that story only to impress the fact that don't join industry for a particular project. Join industry because of the big picture of you want to help in a significant way find a therapeutic. Well, and maybe just continuing on that pathway that you were beginning to describe as you got started at Abbott and that early change in your ability to kind of adapt and pivot. Mm -hmm. Can you weave in any more examples along the way of kind of the joys that you experienced? Maybe a project that took you to a finish line that, you know, you, you were able to kind of see it through to that outcome and maybe contrasting. Have you been involved in any projects that didn't make it to that win. Have I been involved in any projects <laughs> that didn't make it? I've been involved it's a in setup. It's a many, setup. many, many more projects that did not make it. But uh, actually, that first project I went and worked on uh, targeting neuronal nicotinic receptors, over the course of five years, uh, I was part of a team that advanced multiple molecules into clinical trials. Uh, for indications ranging from Alzheimer's to schizophrenia to pain. Uh, and in the case of the pain molecule, we were, fortunate, it was, it was, we were fortunate to see some efficacy, but there were also some side effects that made that, that go, you know, we weren't able to continue, continue with it. Uh, but during that journey, because that family receptors were still being, the biology was still being uncovered, it was very novel, uh, we were able to do great science, get great publications out, and also find, or find molecules that you could test the hypothesis in humans. So I can, you know, we did not succeed with that family of molecules in, in human testing but we were able to test the hypothesis and then move on to something else. So, but you know, I've, I, you know, and you mentioned, John mentioned a couple of these at the, at the outset. Uh, being part of the journey 
to come up with a best-in-class molecule for the treatment of uh, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, the BCL2 inhibitor, phenetoclax. It is the one and only BCL2 inhibitor that's on the market today. That was a 20-year journey from the, from the time research at Abbott started till 2016 or 2013 when the drug was, uh, was approved. That, and that uh, was a wonderful example of translational medicine at work, translational science at work. So, and again, I was a small part of that team. I, I led the discovery organization, but the sci- there was members of the discovery team who were very intimately involved in that. But that was that and the, uh, the treatment for hepatitis C. When we started that work, the treatment for hepatitis C was interferon, which you would have to take for 50 48 weeks. It had a 50% cure rate, and you were the adverse events were very significant. Uh, you know what? We under over time we understood the virus, and and once you understand and can pinpoint the cause of a disease, it's and you've got the tools and technology. It's still challenging, but you can come up with a molecule. So the molecule that's now on the market, Maverick, uh, that has a 95 to 100% cure rate Mm -hmm. in four to eight weeks. So just think about what that means for patients. Mm -hmm. Because you can throw statistics out there, 100% or 50%. You're transforming people's lives. Quality of life. And there's no greater joy than meeting a patient whose life has been transformed by something you were a little piece of. Yeah, but the other thing that I'm hearing through this uh, dialogue is the words that come to mind are, it's, it's a long game, and there will be setbacks along the way. So persistence, resilience, patience are required for that entrepreneurial creative path in the sciences to even have the chance at that right. win. Right. Yes. <laughs> and and I would say that even if you spend your whole career trying to advance these molecules towards the patient and you don't necessarily succeed in bringing the molecule forward, the breadth of science that you've created in your path opens up the door to others to build on top of it. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, it's, I, no, I there, there, it's, a, yeah it's a very mm-hmm. fair statement. And there's one other, you know, attribute. And I, I talked a lot about this uh, when I was at Abbott Navi leading research and at Vanquish today, a small company. Uh, and that is when you are doing what we're trying to do in biotech and biopharma, as a scientist, incredibly, or as, as part of the scientific enterprise, incredibly important that you follow the mantra of truth-seeking versus progression-seeking. And what do I mean by that? You know, too often uh, investigators will do experiments that support what they want to believe. Okay, and I'm seeing a lot of nodding heads here. During your PhDs, you were probably go, told, go do an experiment that will support this, will yield a publication and a grant. 
Okay? That's progression seeking. Truth seeking is when you're willing and uh, understand it is so important that you do experiments that could disprove your hypothesis. Because there are patients, you know what, if you're, if you're a patient with an aggressive form of Parkinson's disease, uh, working on a program that is doomed to failure in the clinic is, is not very helpful. So if you just keep in mind the patient, mm-hmm. a loved one who has X or Y disease, uh, you know, to me, if, if you that if you say, Jim, sum up one thing that you would encourage people if they're joining this industry to do, be a lifelong learner and be passionate, particularly when you get into leadership positions about having a culture that's about seeking the truth. Because the truth will come out. And the worst place for the truth to come out is when you do a large phase two clinical study and your approach does not work and you could have avoided that by some experiments early in preclinical. Special thanks to our sponsors, World Business Chicago. Connect with World Business Chicago, the city's economic development agency, and discover more about the city's vibrant life science ecosystem. From Chicago's global universities and research institutions to its diverse pipeline of skilled talent and vibrant neighborhoods, as well as its cutting edge lab and office space, Chicago has the fuel for your company's success. There's no better place to build a life science company than in Chicago. Um, So talking about truth seeking and uh, getting drugs to patients, uh, one of the things as entrepreneurial fellows that we're doing is working at with academics to progress their science towards a point where it might be picked up by bigger pharma Mm -hmm. or be turned into an early stage biotech Mm -hmm. startup. And so within that truth seeking, there is this, what is the data that needs to be there to really convince you that this is gonna work from our animal models into patients and eventually become a drug. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you think about that translation and how do you come up with what are the questions that I need to show preclinically um, to really say to myself, I, I do believe that when I move this into patients, we might start seeing the results we want to see. Uh, really important question. And, and maybe I'll answer it like using Vanqua as an example. So after AbbVie and using OrbiMed as an example. So after a decade leading research at Abbott, AbbVie, I left and went to a venture capital company for which I'm still part of but then with a view to starting Vanquish. Which if I pause really quickly and interject again that seems like a pretty transformative risky decision too. I mean you worked your way into a very senior leadership position at AbbVie one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world and that probably could be just like you said you could keep going uh, in academia. You decided to take a step out of that role Mm -hmm and take a new risk joining Orbimed yeah. first, right? And then forming yeah. Vanqua. So I didn't mean to interrupt, interrupt you, but I think it's important to state that once again, you stayed true to your, your driving force and yeah. made a decision to, lose, to, to, to kind of lose the comfortable confines and put yourself in a new scenario because why, why? Yeah, that's a, well, and I'll come to your question, but yes, very astute observation. Uh, I loved doing what I was doing at AbbVie. After 10 years leading 
a large global organization. We'd research sites all over the globe. There was over 1,500 scientists. I also found that uh, I was spending more time, you know, on initiatives that weren't really motivating me, my inner, my inner drive. And I was also at a point in my life where this hankering to go back to my beginning in a small company, uh, I could wait. For, I could have waited for another five years or ten years and enjoyed the, the joys and tribulations of working in large pharma and all the comforts that come with that. But it's like, no, I need to do this now. And so I was very, very fortunate uh, to, you know approached by a couple of VCs and ultimately chose Orimed in part because of a patient who's the inspiration for Vanqua. And uh, so now I'll come back to, okay, what, what do you look for and what's really important, at least from my perspective, and it's just a perspective. Um, firstly, and when we were starting Vanqua, we, you know, we, the, my co-founder is Dimitri Kranz, who's the chair of neurology at Northwestern. Dimitri has done some fantastic, and his team have done some fantastic work understanding how patient or how you can use patient-derived neurons to study the emergence of pathogenic phenotypes of Parkinson's disease and other neurologic disorders. So we set up the company with a view to, okay, for GBA Parkinson's disease, which is an aggressive form of Parkinson's disease, it affects by 10% of Parkinson's patients, um, we, you know, we understand the genetics a little bit, or to some extent. There is a, a muta mutations in the GBA1 gene. So that's the first thing, first guiding principle. What genetic evidence or linkage is there to the disease or disease pathophysiology? Okay. Strongly encourage that. And when you know when you're working with academic investigators, and they're thinking about being able to raise money, at least again one person, actually one company's organized viewpoint. What's the human gen? Are, is there human genetics to support this, particularly in a complex area like neuroscience? Second thing then is, do you have the reagents and tools that give you the opportunity to come up with a differentiated? therapeutic. Uh, and in the case of Vanqua, we were able to harness the potential of patient-derived neurons and use those neurons to study disease, to understand mechanism of action, and to screen for therapeutics. Uh, so that's really important as well. Then, you know, make it simple. The third part is the team. Can you build the right, can you recruit the right people and team members to, to, to bring this concept to, uh, to fruition in terms of uh, finding a therapeutic? But, um, you know, there's, as you work with, you know, really highly qualified academic uh, investigators, it's really important that, you know, in addition to anticipating where science is going, to ask the question, how is your approach going to be differentiated, not just from the current standard of care, 
but all you know some of the approaches and molecules that are in the pipeline today in phase one, two, three. Tell me how you're going to be differentiated. Don't show me too many animal models or, uh, you know, uh, show me where you've run your approach, your molecule relative to the current standard of care and, and showing it to be differentiated such that you can expect a better, pay, a better outcome for patients. Does that help answer your question? I think it, it definitely helps answer the question. Um, if, if I could follow up a little bit on... Your, with your experience at Abbott, I guess one of our hypotheses at the Chicago Biomedical Consortium that we'd like to maybe run by you and test if you also think so, but um, we're under the impression that Big Pharma is starting to acquire companies at earlier and early stages mm -hmm. um, and trying to think about, again, what is the data benchmarks that you might need in order to uh, be brought, you know, be bought out essentially. Kind of a minimum viable data package, if you will. Yeah, so there's, yeah. there's, and you likely noticed, there are target product profiles uh, that, uh, you know, people want. Now, that's a different profile for a molecule that's preclinical versus a molecule that's in phase two, three. But so what would get a large company excited about either acquiring or doing a big collaboration with a small company? It, it, it does, of course, come down to the data package. Do you, uh, how are you differentiated? Why is your approach differentiated and potential to be first, best in class? Uh, what do you understand about the properties of your molecule? Uh, do you understand the pharmacokinetics, the pharmacodynamics, the tolerability, the safety? Really important across multiple areas is a question around what will you measure in early clinical development, i.e. in phase 1B, so in healthies and in some patients, that will show target engagement and a pharmacodynamic response. Do you have a biomarker strategy, in other words? Uh, that is really important. And sadly, too many times, um, smaller companies don't have that package. Uh, I would really encourage small companies as much as possible not to go down the path of being bought out, being acquired by a big company, until such time as they have a molecule that is either close, it is either just passed through the IND phase or is in phase one because you're not going to get the value. Continue to seek uh, other sources of funding until that point in time. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's, it is going to be the quality of the data. There is a misconception that... Uh, in big pharma, they're all about buying companies and commercial, and you know, there's not much science going on. That is a complete misconception. Some of the brightest scientists and greatest teams I've ever worked with were at Abbott and AbbVie. There's, you know, they are as good as anybody on the planet, and uh, that's why we had the success getting phenetoclax and other molecules. Uh, but there's a huge role for small companies. Huge role, and that's what that's what I love about what I'm doing now. Because now I'm in a small company, I've got all those challenges to to deal yeah. with. Uh, well, and maybe just elucidating further, just the profile of the are there are there kind of non 
technical attributes of your ideal academic co-founder? What are some of the things that you'd like to see in an academic co-founder? And then maybe as you're building Vanqua, talk a little bit about the team. What are some of the characteristics of the people that you're trying to build into that team so that you ultimately are able to reach that overall objective? That's a great question. That's a great question. Um, So in terms of co-founder, I'm obviously biased. but Dimitri is an entrepreneur at heart. He has already uh, been involved with starting up at least one other company. He is very interested in seeing ideas be translated into, uh, being tra- you know, transla- transferred into companies and then translated into therapeutics to go into humans. So he brings that interest uh, that's in his DNA. He's obviously tremendously successful as an academician, as chair of a department. But I really respect that, uh, oh, could we do something with this? Uh, what would it take? So that's, that's on the co-founder side. He's, mm, he is very interested in publishing in very prestigious journals and does so. But he's also very interested in seeing companies like Vanquist start and, and be successful. Um, in terms of the team, um, well, it starts with my own personal philosophy is hire people who are smarter than you and let them do their job. Uh, hold them accountable, but let them do their job. And smarter, it's easy to say smarter than you. What do I mean by that? Like, I do mean that they bring, they have skill sets that you don't have you're very comfortable with them being uh, much better than you uh, at, at certain parts of, of, of drug discovery and development because it's a team sport. Our CSO is a gentleman called Kevin Hunt who grew up more in the biotech area, companies, series of biotech companies, uh, and is a tremendous medicinal chemist. I'm not a medicinal chemist, so right there is somebody that's going to be much better. Dan Eiselstein, who joined us from Northwestern, brings tremendous expertise in patient-derived neurons and and uh, the cell biology of Parkinson's disease. So to me, that's the secret sauce is actually bringing these individuals uh, and then trying to create the culture where everybody parks their ego at the door and is focused on how do we get a treatment as quickly as possible for somebody, in our case, with GBA Parkinson's disease. I think one thing that you've touched upon numerous times, and I really enjoy listening to you talk about it again and again, is, you know, letting go of your ego. And I think uh, here with us, at the, the, the fellows at the CBC, um, our, our supervisor, Michelle, really relies on us um, and it, it's nice to see, and it's very reaffirming to see that this isn't just happening here, it's happening everywhere. It has, it, it has to happen that way. And science can be, you know, John alluded to this or, or asked about it earlier. Science is very humbling. And I have had far more failures. I have gone into work many more days to, to have disappointing data presented to me, which means maybe the end of a program. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
And that has happened way more than successes in terms of getting a drug that successfully makes it to the market, way, way more. So if after that process you don't, if you're not f- humbled, uh, I don't know what's wrong with you, frankly. Uh, but, uh, you know, there are a lot of people who really believe, okay, it's my idea and we're going to do it my way. And that'll work for a period of time, but I don't think you can be successful long term. Well, I'm curious to know those early programs that you're involved in at Abbott on the neurology side, to what extent, you know, are you accumulating knowledge, whether yeah. it's around a given field of science or how you do something, how you go from, yeah. you know, in vitro to animal to IND to clinical, like to what extent have those collective experiences helped you today in being the CEO yeah. and co-founder of Vanquabio? And, and is that, do you say that that is, a, is an aid in the process or is it a, uh, a hindrance coming from a large company going to a small company having those experiences? I think it can, I think it's both an aid and it can be a hindrance. So let me talk about the aid. You know, for decades, uh, all of us doing research in the neuroscience area relied very heavily on animal models uh, and or in vitro systems using mouse or rat neurons, whereby you would add a toxin, rotenone, the molecule I worked on my PhD, MPTP, to these cells, or sometimes inject them in vivo, and call that a model of Parkinson's disease. Similar in the case of schizophrenia research, there's other tools that we used. Nothing translated. So what do you learn from that? That's where I go back to my, you know, my one of my big learnings is human genetics. And two, I've become a huge proponent of using patient-derived uh, iPSCs and patient-derived neurons, astrocytes, microglia, in the case of neuro research. Uh, I think it's it's a tremendously exciting time in oncology today, where now we are truly starting to see you know, the ability of machine learning, et cetera, to start to predict mutations in different cancer types. There's a great paper this week or last week in, I think it was Nature, across a number of cancer types and predictions around therapy. So, you know, at Vanqua, you know, when we were starting up the company, if we didn't have those two things, like a target and targets, where there's a human genetic link, and then the tools and reagents, the iPSCs, et cetera, I wouldn't have done it. I would have waited for something else. So uh, that's, that's really important. Now, how can it be a hindrance? It can be a hindrance because you get very set in your ways. So you take many years and scars and you get, uh, well, this, this won't work. And you got to always, always, uh, you know, you know, be, you know, be careful as a leader in in saying this, you know, this just because it didn't work 20 years ago, maybe there is a new insight that I should be open to. And if you have that insight, I will listen. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. New tools. The science new tools, new, that's right. Relooking at it and keeping an open mind. 
So uh, kind of touching more so on those scars that you've acquired over the years. <laughs> Sounds um, painful. <laughs> it is, but hopefully this won't be painful. Um, <laughs> so we always uh, were learning as fellows to de-risk projects. We're kind of preparing to lower the risk and, and so that it's less likely to acquire those scars, but I am looking forward to acquiring them as well. Um, <laughs> you will. <laughs> But how, how do you how do you approach when you like you've said you know that the project will likely fail not only personally but from a team morale perspective and now as the head of a company just to keep the company outlook moving forward? Oh, um, well let me let me first talk about during my time in in uh, V and, and and address it that way. And it comes back to what I, I really, I, I passionately believe. We're here to find therapies for patients. If, you're, if you do the right experiment and the data is negative, one, you need to celebrate that. One, you need to recognize and reward what we used to call an intelligent failure. I'm not sure I like that term, but uh, you know, it, it doesn't work, it's not going to work out. And so if the team comes, comes forward and says, we did the following set of experiments, uh, and, uh, you know, there was, and, and the data was negative, and uh, we could do five other experiments, or 10 other experiments to try and figure it out. But at some point you've got to say, no, we're cutting the Band-Aid. Now we're going to take those resources. We're going to ask you to go work on something else that maybe, or that we believe has a higher probability of success. Obviously in a smaller company, you've got, you know, by definition, you've got fewer projects. Uh, so making sure before you make an investment uh, in well, putting on my venture capital hat for a minute. Before you make an investment in the company, you you really believe in the science and you believe in the team. Uh, well, then you know it, it's going to work out. And part of my role as a leader to make sure that uh, if program A does not work out, we have a program B that we're equally com- it's, that's equally attractive that we could you know pivot to. Uh, so that's 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 part of the role of leaders. Now, if I, reflecting on your question a little more, you do have the challenge that if you're working with uh, an academic uh, investigator who has not yet started a company, but really believes in their idea as being the next the best thing since white bread, uh, then you know it's 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 a conversation. It is a conversation, and it's sometimes much, and it's it's much harder at times for them to you know to be have the patient front and center, or they do have the patient front and center, but they're so mm-hmm. they have such a huge belief in their idea that actually have they done the critical experiments to show why this will be better and differentiated. And I think you can help them. That's I'm hoping all of you can help them with that. Not in a threatening way. It's never a it should never be I'm smarter than you. That never works. I can tell you that from 
lots of experience, but rather, you know, here are things you really need to consider, particularly if you want to transfer this into a company. But I think building on that too, Jim, wouldn't you say that back to kind of identifying ultimately as a venture capitalist, your you know, ideal academic co-founder for a company that you're about to invest yeah. in, um, good listening skills by that academic co-founder can be a differentiator as well as, as something I've found. I yeah, wonder if you've found the no, same. No, very much because, so. Yeah. Because, you know, if one is so headstrong about one idea and they're not willing to listen, that means they're not respecting. And again, there's always a struggle and it doesn't mean like it's a situation where you're simply saying, well, we think that you should stop and go this way, that they should simply, you know, move forward in that direction. It's always a struggle and a back and forth and it's iterative. But if you find that that individual is unwilling to listen, I have found ultimately that's a signal for, it may not be the right academic co-founder to partner with because it will be a long journey. There is a lot to learn. They do know the most about their particular area of science, right? But when it comes to translating that science into something that's commercializable, how connected to the market are they? Do they really know what molecules are out there? And that's where the fellows can really help to ferret those things out. But at the end of the day, there may be situations where, in, in, in my experience, where that academic a brilliant mind is unwilling to listen, and that can end up being, you know, a, a barrier to getting a product. And, and, that, and then you have to, then you have to move on. Then you have to move on and look for for uh, someone else to invest in. Um, I would say less than. Well, I don't want to. It's a real small minority of ideas that I would see on a weekly basis at Orbimed that get funded. And I think that's really important to, to emphasize on because ourselves, we've, we've already seen that point of view too, where we've gone to academics and they've presented before us on some of their, their work that they believe is the next XYZ. And, you know, some of them have been receptive to the feedback we've given them, but some of them haven't. Invest your time. Invest your time with the folks who are receptive, because that teaches me that they're learners. They're listening. Listening is a better John's term, Uh, and they may not be working on the right idea today, but maybe their research will get molded because of this interaction to something that uh, could really help. I'm sorry. I think I cut you off. No, I was just gonna build on Amanda's point in that I think when we first started this position, it was pretty hard for us, especially coming straight out of graduate school where we are, you know, lower on the totem pole. Now we are in the position to tell faculty members like, hey, your science may not be where it needs to be in order to be commercialized. And it's, I think it's pretty daunting to go from (laughs) that low on the totem pole to being in that position of power. And so I think we're all balancing the fact that, you know, we're new to this space. We know more than our former PIs do now about commercializing science. Like how do we how do we enter that space with that confidence, with that knowledge? I well, mean respect. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good for you. That's, that is that is the that is the right that is the right word. Uh, you have to have the right bedside manner. I mean, yes. you get, it's, it's diplomacy. It's all the it's charm. You know, it's uh, and and I don't know. It's right. It's term. help. You're you're there 
if you know, be careful about completely shooting down an idea at the first interaction. I don't think anybody would do that. I'm sure your program teaches you not to do that. Uh, or coming across as all-knowing because you're in this program. So if you bring a perspective and respect, uh, you will get more out of the interaction. And remember, at the end of the day, you get to, with Michelle and others, you know, to say, yes, this is something we want to invest in or not. And you want to come to the best decision possible. And the way to do that is to, you know, is the person a listener, a learner? Uh, what do you bring to the table that they don't have? You don't bring deep any better knowledge of their target or their technology, but you do bring a perspective on hopefully on uh, here's the current standard of care, here's where this field is moving. And uh, if you're going, to, if you're, if Professor X is working on the 10th different approach to, or the 100th different approach to targeting the EGFR receptor, that's going to be a tough road to hoe in 2032 when the molecule gets to patients or gets, in, gets to the marketplace. Yeah. But yeah. Well, and so maybe switching gears a little bit as we, you know, round out the discussion here today, which has been, you know, really inspiring and stimulating to, to have this dialogue amongst, amongst the full group. But Jim, you know, you decided when you launched uh, Vanqua uh, from Orbimed, who's really a New York-based mm -hmm. fund in Chicago. So can you talk a little bit about why you were able to do that? You know, was Orbimed supportive? Obviously, they were. And how? What are your views around just the kind of the word ecosystem and its importance for you know uh, sustainability of more Vanqua-like companies? So, as I said, I, well, first of all, you know, and I've said this in other forums, I would not be Vanqua would not be in Chicago today if it was not for people like John and Portal Innovations, because what he has done over the last decade and longer to promote an ecosystem in Chicago uh, deserves tremendous, tremendous credit. We'll and edit that out, don't worry. No, no, <laughs> well, don't, because people, the world should know that, and they do know that. Uh, when I was leaving AbbVie and I was thinking about this next career journey, uh, uh, one of my professional goals and, and was to try and help build an ecosystem in Chicago for biotech. That was, uh, that was definitely one of my goals. And when we were starting Vanqua, uh, you know, the managing partner at Orbimed, who is one of our uh, board members now, Jonathan Silverstein, was like, well, do you, do you want to put in Boston or South San Francisco? Etc. Etc. And I go, no, I want to do it here. I want to. I want to. I really want to try and make this work here, knowing that it'd be a little more challenging to get some of the the talent we needed. But I go, that's something that I think over the long term could be beneficial. And from an Orbimed perspective, you know, they would love to see more companies spun up in in Chicago. Uh, as long, you know, they, yeah, to be to be blunt about it. 
the geography is less important to what's the, is the science compelling? Is the team compelling? And then if it is, and you've got the infrastructure, go for it. And so I was fortunate that they said yes. Obviously it helped, Dimitri was here as well. And uh, so here we are. And uh, I think because of programs like you are all participating in and Portal and the infrastructure that's been built, uh, I'm very confident about the future for Chicago uh, in terms of uh, being a life science center. I really, I, I really am. You know, I, I think the more entrepreneurial scientists are recruited to head up departments across the universities, that will help a lot as well. Uh, and then I, th- then I think we, we can do, because we have the infrastructure, we have a beautiful city, we have tremendous universities, and you can extend it to you know Wisconsin and UFI, Notre Dame, Michigan. Uh, so we have everything you need, and so I'm hoping that with you know, hope, hopefully Fanqua is a big success, and then companies will like Orbimed will go. Yeah, well, what do you want to do next? Uh, and let's set it up in Chicago. So it builds on itself. Yeah. Yeah, no, and, and I think even just back to your point around the, the top-notch research institutions that we have, if you go back a decade, you know, the the investments that have been made into the entrepreneurial academic platform uh, at our universities, I also think um, is a big part in why our ecosystem is unfolding. There are a mm. lot more now Cambridge-backable faculty in our region because the universities have recognized the importance of those that can translate innovation into commercializable technologies. And so now that we have the Dimitris in the ecosystem and there are more like that, there are opportunities now to build around those people. And oftentimes, you know, just like you can have a repeater entrepreneur you're oftentimes going to see repeater academic right. founders that it's not one and done. They're, they keep getting better at company number two and company number three. And so that's what I think is really interesting to watch. And I think bodes well for sustainability is the underpinnings of the source of that innovation are increasing in translatability. And there's now things to invest in. And now there's more programs like the CBC, Entrepreneurial Fellows Program, and others like it that start to build around around that. And then you have larger companies that need to be nearby that. You need venture firms that are looking for those opportunities. And I think the more you create that coral reef or whatever you want to call it, it creates the right conditions so that more things can start to happen. And we, I, it seems like those things are happening in Chicago. Yeah, and I, and I just can't emphasize, I can't emphasize enough the human aspect of this. Uh, to John's point, Orbimed is is you know obviously a very successful venture capital company. Um, there are people at senior levels in Orbimed and who have seen certain entrepreneurs succeed not once but twice. If they come in with a reasonable idea, their chances of getting funded is much higher than, you know, Jim Sullivan coming in as a first-time CEO. And so I say that only because it, 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 it just speaks to John's point of 
once you have, a, which we're now starting to have, a couple of people who've done it uh, well in academia and spun out companies, now it'd be great the next time they spin out a company to have it here in Aberdeen or over on West Fulton. That's, that's the goal. And uh, we can make that happen. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. I'm going to leave with one uh, question, Jim, if I could, and that is with just speaking about geographies and ecosystems. But, you know, um, you know, you've you've definitely demonstrated a pattern of taking risks. But I would say early on, you took a major risk and, you know, coming from Ireland to the U.S., what are some of the things that you miss about Ireland? Oh, boy. <laughs> the, and and uh, what, are, what what's the one thing you took with you from Ireland that has helped you kind of on your on your on long term journey. Uh, I don't mean a suitcase. I mean you know. Like, no, uh, no. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what do I miss about Ireland? Um, well, for those who've not gone to Ireland, please go. And when you go, make sure you don't necessarily stay in all the fancy hotels, but go stay in bed and breakfast and go into a local village pub or restaurant. But go into a pub. And uh, what I miss most about Ireland is you go into one of those places and you sit at a table and you're with, you can be with strangers or with friends, but the conversation is rich. You know, there's something in our Irish DNA that says we are the very best at solving everybody else's problems. Not so good at solving our own problems, <laughs> but we're really good at solving other people's problems. And I love, I love that uh, more relaxed, more you know, it's it, yeah, more relaxed way of of, of living. It's uh, I do, I do, yeah. I obviously miss friends and family, but uh, I miss that's one part of Ireland that I do, I do miss. Now, what what came with me? Um, well, as is probably self-evident from the fact that we are over schedule, uh, <laughs> I love to chat with people. And uh, so I have been very fortunate, you know, again, I've been very fortunate in my career. And a large part of that is being fortunate to be able to build relationships with people. And uh, that, that has served me. In, I've been very fortunate uh, to be able to do that. So that came from, from home. Thanks for joining us today. It was another great episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with our guests today and were inspired the way I was. Looking forward to reconvening again in two weeks. Please visit our website at labratstounicorns.com. We welcome any of your comments, feedback, ideas. If you want me to ask certain questions of guests or you have ideas of people that we should be interviewing. That is all goodbye. Goodbye.